trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Welcome to the show. All right. The bad news is there's been a shift in the weather. It got much colder, and I don't know what it is. Something about when that happens, it seems like my body's like, oh, cool. Well, let's celebrate. Let's uh, let's invite a cold or something. So it's it's in my throat right now. You can probably hear that. You know, the, the timber of my voice is starting to uh, to drop a little bit. And that's usually a pretty good sign. I'm, I'm headed for a case of laryngitis. Knock on wood. You know, I really hope that's not the case. But uh, I'll be very shocked if by the end of this week I still have a voice. And, and that's, maybe that's not such a big deal, right? You get a, you get a, a rest. <laughs> I think, frankly, the public could stand a little bit of a, a break from me. But it's tough, especially when there's stuff going on. And I'm like, oh, I just, I want to, I want to weigh in on this, or I want to share this information that I think is good or provides some context or perspective. And there's a lot going on right now. Look, if you wonder, if you're tuning in for the first time, and I always uh, have to operate on the assumption that yes, there are faithful listeners. And I thank both of you for being faithful listeners, mom, especially you, you didn't have to, but you do it anyway. And uh, for those who are tuning in though, for the first time, just to you know, test the waters. This is, what's what's this all about? What what's this show about? What's this guy about? In a nutshell, I'm here to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible about what's going on around us. Why? Well, because there's propaganda everywhere, and that, by the way, doesn't mean therefore you should believe only what I tell you because I have all the answers. I don't. But there is so much spin and there's such a a blizzard of information that's hitting us 24-7. I mean, come on, we carry the screens with us in our pocket and, you know, it's, it's coming from every angle. Nobody in the history of humanity has had more information coming at them at once than we have right now or better access to it. And yet, uh, very few people actually really know what's going on. We're, we're very easily led and manipulated, often by fear and sometimes by anger. We're seeing a lot of this right now. So, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this today, although um, I do have a great article from Brandon Smith for two days in a row. Brandon has captured the article of the day honors. But uh, we are being led into war. I'm sorry, there's no gentle way to say it. And it's not a war that's in our interest as far as, you know, this is to protect you and to maintain your freedoms and protect you from evildoers out there in the world. I'm sorry to tell you. The people who are trying to foment this war, and there are many different players that are are a part of this, include your own government. And the crazy thing about it is they're going to expect you and me to fall in line and be patriotic and support what they say When the truth of the matter is, you know, they hate us as bad as any of the putative enemies out there who really want to do away with our way of life. The people who sit in positions of authority, and I'm talking from the federal government right on down, sometimes to your local municipality, are already destroying the American dream, destroying your freedoms, putting you in bondage, putting your children and their children in bondage through borrowing immense amounts of money with no intention of paying it back. Well, we'll let future generations figure out how to pay it back. 
It's intergenerational theft. It is a crime against humanity. And we accept it as, well, it's, it's normal. And, and it's, probably, it's a good thing, you know, that these people have the power to tell us what to do and to hurt us if we don't. Because otherwise, the world would be a very scary place. That's the, that's the story we've been sold. And because it's what we've been sold from a very early age, a lot of people buy into it as if uh, it's, it's just the way things ought to be. I mean, think about this for just a second. The people in authority lied about COVID. They lied about vaccines. They've been lying about Ukraine. They lied about election fraud. They lied about WMDs and a thousand other things that made them unfathomably rich and powerful at the expense of the rest of us. Now, by the way, I'm not suggesting there isn't nuance to every single one of these issues. There is. But the version that they have sold us, the narrative that they have beamed at us and forced down our throats and viciously, you know, sought to enforce by suppressing any alternative points of view. It's put us under their power. It's put us, we were captured by them. And now everything they're telling us about the Israel and Palestine conflict, well, you know, that's true. And the only solution is to meet indiscriminate violence with more indiscriminate violence and bomb the poor people of the Middle East, likely leading to World War III between the U.S., Iran, Russia, and whoever else wants to join the death cult in bombing poor people. Which, by the way, is going to be us at some point. Now, again, you can, you can just, at this point, you're probably thinking, okay, what the hell have I got myself into? <laughs> Is he always going off like this? Not always, but I am passionate about this because it's very clear to me that governments across the world coordinated in near-perfect unison and destroyed lives of who knows how many people with lockdowns, with vaccines, with ventilators, remdesivir, and, and all the draconian COVID measures, which they enforced at the point of a gun. So when they tell you, well, you know, but we're telling you that we're so concerned about human life and, you know, what Hamas did in Israel. Do, do you really think any of them mourn over civilian casualties in any context or think it's a tragedy? When you hear uh, Benjamin Netanyahu say, we mourn every civilian casualty, it's hard to believe him when he said it so many times over the years and yet continues blowing up buildings with innocent people in them as well as not-so-innocent people. And now they're trying to destabilize and destroy Iran subversively at this point, but it's going to be open kinetic conflict at some point. We've been desensitized to death through the mainstream media through TV shows, through movies, through video games. And there's an awful lot of people who believe this is just normal and what's going on is right. And besides, if anything really was wrong, the media would tell us about it. The news, the press would would say something, wouldn't they? I know, I I, I weep, not just for my country, but for people all over the world who have been blinded to what's being done to them. Now, having said that, I'm not content to just sit here and, well, I'm going to complain and you're going to hear about everything that grinds my gears. I want to talk about solutions as well. We have to, okay? Identifying the problem, that's, that's part of it. Getting people to recognize that, oh, well, maybe, maybe this isn't to me. Maybe these handcuffs that they've been putting on me aren't for my good, as I've been told. 
So what are we going to do about it? Okay, well, the, the simple answer, and this is, this is the beginning, is to first of all recognize that you've been lied to or recognize that you've been manipulated or propagandized. It's hard. And for a lot of people, the first time they bump into the limits of their mental universe, they get defensive. Okay, that's cognitive dissonance at work. That's trying to hold contradictory thoughts at the same time. No, oh, this, this is not right. And if I've been fooled about this, if I've been fooled about others, am I just a dupe? Okay, it makes people uncomfortable. And some people get just downright hostile. And they'll puff up, you know, they become the gorilla version of themselves and, you know, they fight back against it. They get angry. It's unavoidable. But the first thing you have to do is be courageous enough to admit, okay, we've been duped or at least we've been lied to. So how can I do a better job of propaganda proofing myself and being able to sort out fact from fiction? That's where it starts. But once you recognize the people, the institutions, the, the movements that have lied to you or otherwise sought to control you and rule your life, the next big step is coming to the conclusion that they can only do that with your consent. You have to give them your obedience. You have to give them your allegiance. And that's something you can choose not to do. Now, some people are afraid, well, that'll make me, you know, antisocial. That'll make me, you know, some kind of outlaw, you know, a, a law unto myself. How do I say this gently? I guess I don't. We need the right kind of outlaws. The only people who have ever moved humanity in a positive direction are the people who are willing to stand up to unreasonable things, to go against the grain. So when I say the right kind of outlaws, I'm not talking about people who go out and victimize others and steal from them and commit violence against them. More often than not, it's the people who stand up against those who under the color of law or under, you know, a position of authority and with this apparent, you know, legitimacy are doing exactly that, visiting violence on people, trying to bend them to their will. I mean, it may come as a surprise, and maybe this seems pedantic to point it out to you, but I got to tell you, you don't have to go along with your own enslavement. It can only take place with your permission, with your acquiescence. And if you choose to withdraw your consent, well, guess what? You're free to pursue other ways of building a better world. You'll hear me talk about parallel structures, parallel institutions, parallel societies. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Let's get to work on building what comes next. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, back to the show. Thanks again for staying with me. I feel like I got quite a bit off my chest there. <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, I do feel better. I hope, uh, if, if nothing else, you hopefully feel encouraged or at least have a little bit better understanding of why I do what I do. It matters. This, this matters. Not because I'm doing it, but because in the long run, the things that matter most are the things that, that we have to come up with the courage and strength and willingness to sometimes sacrifice or to experience discomfort or pain to protect. So, you know, when, when I'm asking you, you know, to stand up and be brave and, you know, don't, uh, don't knuckle under just because somebody in authority tells you you have to, I'm not asking you to do anything I'm not willing to do myself. I love words. 
I always have. Very fortunate. My mom taught me to read when I was very, very young, and books were where I spent a good deal of my childhood. And that love of reading continues, you know, well into adulthood. I love to write, which is, that's not something I always enjoyed. But uh, words fascinate me, language and linguistics. I love when people are able to, you know, frame an idea in ways that make sense or that stick with people. So I really loved this article from Gary Gallus. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Do I own what is what is mine? And he talks about weasel words. He says, before I even came across the term weasel word in Friedrich Hayek's The Fatal Conceit, though he credited it to unnamed Americans, I was interested in words that can be used to mislead and misdirect people's understanding with regard to public policy. He says, for example, Hayek cited 160 words whose meanings can be altered by simply adding social as a modifier. And Gary Gallus says, I've long been struck by one of his examples in particular, the term social justice, because it's in direct conflict with the traditional meaning of justice to give each his own, so that social justice means injustice in a very important way. Now, other examples of weasel words include phrases such as quid pro quo, The term suggests an exchange of equal values, but that's misleading about market exchanges because all parties to voluntary exchanges expect that their benefits will exceed their costs. Viewing something with mutual gains as something producing no gains dramatically misstates reality. It blinds people to the wealth destroyed when government interferes with voluntary exchanges, as with taxes, tariffs, regulations, and the like, which economists call welfare costs or excess burdens. Now, Gary Gallus says, single words beyond just social also make our public discussions more like a tower of Babel than reasoned communication. He says, an example economists often object to is need. Need, used in discussing public policy, assumes away the fact that scarcity makes trade-offs unavoidable, including trade-offs including choices among various needs. Thus, calling something a need diverts attention away from the actual choices faced. Further, the word often translates as, I want, but I do not want to pay for. Oh, that's, that is awesome. Which then sees governments taking someone else's resources involuntarily to provide what is desired. He says, even something as seemingly innocuous as the word we can function as a weasel word in public policy. Consider Social Security beneficiaries' claims that we Americans paid our Social Security taxes, we Americans earned our benefits, for example. Rhetorically lumping citizens into a single we hides the multi-trillion dollar wealth redistribution to earlier generations and away from current and future generations, meaning that different members of us have been treated very differently. Now, he says, lately I've been thinking about the word, even the word my, how it can be a weasel word. My denotes something that I'm associated with or connected to, as with those are my friends, or that is my community, or that is my country. However, my can also be used as a possessive pronoun to denote ownership, as with that is my property, or it is my life to live. And the difference between those two meanings opens the door to the fallacy of equivocation, as described by Peter Kreeft, as the simplest, most common of all the material fallacies in which the same term is used in two or more different senses in the course of an argument. So here's what he means. The possessive sense of my implies ownership, 
And ownership consists of a bundle of property rights, such as the ability to use something as the owner chooses, subject to not violating others' rights in the process. Further, it gives openers veto power over others' proposed use of their owners, rather, I guess, uh, veto power over others' proposed uses of their property, since an owner's agreement is required for such uses. In contrast, the associative sense of my does not imply ownership or any of its characteristics. But sometimes what's initially used as an associative my is morphed into an ownership my in an argument to claim some power not implied or created by association. You understand what he's saying? He says one of the most important illustrations of this equivocation involves assertion about assertions assertions rather about jobs, such as that is my job or he stole my job. Now, that you currently have a job means that you are now associated with an employer under terms that both of you have agreed to. If those terms are violated by or no longer acceptable to either party, that association can be terminated. But the fact that your employer has the power to terminate its labor market association with you does not mean you own the job. In fact, it means you do not own the job. You do not have the power to require continued association with someone who doesn't want to employ you unless it would violate your prior agreement. You don't have the power to deny others the ability to do the job you once did. Yet unions assert that their association with an employer, which no employee entered with any power of ownership over his job, becomes effective ownership because a group of them voted to join a union. And in the process, they infringe on the employer's right to decide who it will voluntarily associate with, even though its employer's clearly had that right when they entered the relationship. In other words, unions assert that they magically transmute workers' initial voluntary associations with an employer into effective ownership of their jobs, their jobs, which takes away the employer's power to associate with whom it wishes in the labor market under the banner of freedom of association. And virtually all of the abuses that follow have their roots in that equivocation. So Gary Gallus says the current push to replace shareholders with self-defined stakeholders also relies on the same equivocation. All sorts of people and institutions are associated with or connected to any given corporation, workers, suppliers, their families and communities, charities, friends, and so on. But unlike shareholders, that doesn't give them ownership claims over corporate decisions that were not agreed to by the corporation assertions of which are ultimately backed by the threat that they could use political power to coercively override the rights of corporate shareholders. If such claims are empowered, however, it will undermine many of the social gains well-defined property rights have made possible. Gary Gallus says clear property rights are essential to social cooperation and advance, not to mention justice. As John Adams put it, the moment the idea is admitted into society that property is not as sacred as the laws of God and that there is not a force of law and public justice to protect it, anarchy and tyranny commence. If thou shalt not covet and thou shalt not steal were not commandments of heaven, they must be made inviolable precepts in every society before it can be civilized or made free. And Gary Gallus says, that is why the equivocation connected to the word my may be even more important than many other weasel words. Because such distortions threaten the very basis of a peaceful and prosperous society. That's also why we should rethink the deference we give to what may be the shortest but 
not the least damaging weasel word in common usage today. I think it's kind of kind of cool how he points out those different weasel words. And in fact, I'm, I'm going to issue a small challenge, not just to you, but to myself. As you go about garnering information from whatever sources you choose to, uh, you know, associate yourself with, whether it's the news media, whether it's social media, watch for those weasel words. Watch for the subtle twisting of words that sound like they mean one thing, but are used in a context that means something entirely different. Our democracy. That's a good place to start. Got to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Hey, if you find this information useful, you would probably benefit from subscribing to my show notes. I publish them every time I do the program. And nothing special, just a kind of simple one sheet of a list of articles with links so you can go further if you want to study a little bit further. Also, uh, links that will take you to the various guests that I have on the show. You can go to the com, Brian with a Y, Hyde with a Y, and uh, just click on show notes down at the bottom of the page. There's a subscribe button. It's going to ask you for your email. That's it. I don't share. I don't sell. I don't give your email to other people. I just send you a copy of the show notes every time I do the show. So with that in mind, I really love the writings of Albert J. Nock. And if you're not familiar with him, he is the guy who wrote the book, Our Enemy, The State. He also had a wonderful essay called Isaiah's Job, which uh, quite a few years ago, I can't remember who first introduced me to it. It could have been uh, Dr. Gary North was writing about it. But uh, Isaiah's Job talks about the remnant. And if you remember the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, in a nutshell, um, Isaiah was told, you need to go set the children of Israel straight. God is telling Isaiah, you need to go tell them, straighten up, fly right, or else. And he tells tells Isaiah, by the way, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to run this thing into the ground. I'm I'm paraphrasing, of course. And Isaiah is like, well, why why would I go talk to him? Why am I going to waste my effort and time telling people something that they don't want to hear? And God tells him because there is a remnant out there that needs to hear the truth. They need to know that that I am and that uh, the truth still matters and that they will be counted on to rebuild after the masses, the ones who don't want to listen, have essentially, you know, destroyed their society. Now, again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this a lot, but it's such an apt description of what we see taking place around us. Look look at what the masses are, in, are you know enthralled with right now. Okay, they love sports, they love entertainment, they love gossip. Right now, a lot of the masses are caught up in, you know, do I have the right flag in my avatar? Am I properly emoting my anger and my rage, you know, at the right target? Am I angry with the right people? Am I wishing death on the right people? Okay, the remnant doesn't play those kind of games. You know why? Because they're more interested in the truth, even painful truth. And Albert J. Nock did such a beautiful job of describing that. Now, we're going to talk about another essay of his called Doing the Right Thing. 
This was published almost uh, 100 years ago. It was published in 1924. And Richard M. Ebling from the Future of Freedom Foundation has a wonderful essay. This is linked in today's show notes. I hope you'll check it out. He talks about Albert J. Nock on doing the right thing versus government. And he says, you know, nowadays the very title of that essay would seem strange to many modern Americans. The right thing? Why, surely the right thing would be just doing your own thing. Now, he says, even in 1924, though, Albert J. Nock explained the notion of doing the right thing was not present in the thinking of many Americans, though he thought it was still widely prevalent rather, in the minds of many British. Having spent some time in London, he noticed the number of times the phrase doing the right thing was used and repeated by people going about their everyday affairs. And this was observed by Nock regardless of whether the people saying it were members of the working or middle class or among the upper elite. A dozen times a day, one will hear Englishmen mutter in an apologetic tone, Knox said, beastly bore, you know, oh, devilish bore. But then, you know, one really must do the right thing, mustn't one? Now, Knox immediately saw a connection between this notion of doing the right thing and the idea of individual liberty. In fact, doing the right thing, he said, only had relevance and reality in an environment of extensive personal and economic freedom. I know. <laughs> this is why I'm recommending this essay. It's, it is chock full of great information. Now, from here, Richard Ebling talks about freedom and the three areas, or three arenas, rather, of life. Nock distinguished between three arenas of human conduct. The first was that area of a person's life most directly influenced by government. There, the actions of the individual are constrained by the necessity to follow what the law prescribes, such things as not killing, stealing from, or defrauding others, that is, the negative constraints of a properly limited government. The second area of life, given these legal prohibitions, Nock referred to as matters of personal and indifferent choice. Will you wear a green necktie or a red one, or maybe no necktie at all? Will you dress according to social conventions or as the eccentric little concerned about how others may think. Will you furnish your home in Victorian or rustic style? Spend your weekends in a drunken stupor carousing with your equally inebriated friends or teetotalingly sober and focused on mowing your lawn or fixing that squeaky screen door? Whiling away your time in the evening in front of the television or taking night classes to earn the degree that may open the opportunity for a promotion at work? In a free society, he says to use some of the lyrics of the old song, Ain't nobody's business if I do. If I should take a notion to jump into the ocean, ain't nobody's business if I do. If I go to church on Sunday, then cabaret all Monday, ain't nobody's business if I do. If my man ain't got no money and I say, take all, take all of mine, honey, ain't no business if I do. If I give him my last nickel and it leaves me in a pickle, ain't nobody's business if I do. And finally, Richard Ebling says there is the third area of life, the one Knox said that incorporates doing the right thing. Here's how he put it. Quote, there is a region where conduct is controlled by unenforced, self-imposed allegiance to moral or social consideration. In this region, for instance, one follows the rule of women and children first, takes a long risk to get someone out of a burning house, or, like Sir Philip Sidney, refuses to slake one's own thirst when there's not enough water to go around. Now, in another essay written around the same time, in the mid-20s, a study in manners, Nock gave some examples of what might be considered doing the right thing. And in these instances, doing the right thing is treating others with a sense of right or appropriate conduct, even if the law does not require it, and you could personally benefit by taking advantage of the situation. 
That is, in good conscience, does it really seem right not to act or interact in a certain way towards someone else, given the circumstances, even if it would be to your advantage? Knox says, in stealing an investor's purse, let us say, one must reckon with the law. In stealing his idea, one must reckon with the sense of morals. With the common conscience of mankind in buying up and suppressing his idea or exploiting it without adequate compensation, one must reckon with the sense of manners, with the fine and high perception established by culture, to which such transactions at once appear mean and low. When Baron Tachnitz paid in full royal paid in full royalties to foreign authors whose works he republished before the days of international copyright, he was governed by a sense of manners, for no law compelled him to pay anything, and the morals of trade would have been quite satisfied if he had paid whatever he chose. End quote. So clearly, in paying whatever might have been standard royalties to authors whose works he republished, Baron Tachnitz was doing what his conscience was telling him was the right thing even though existing international law did not make it illegal to fail to do so. Suppose the law said that pickpocketing someone's wallet was illegal, but seeing it fall out of someone's pocket and not returning it was not theft under the law. Doing the right thing would be going up to the person who lost his wallet in this way and handing it back to him, contents intact. To do otherwise would be to take something from another that is their property without their consent due to the accident of circumstances. Now, from here, Richard Ebling talks about doing the right thing in a presidential election. But I'm, I'm going to skip over that part. If you want to check it out, it's, it's really good. He, he talks about uh, uh, John Adams. He talks about Alexander Hamilton, John Jay. Um, it's, it's a terrific example. He also goes on to talk about cultivating doing the right thing, in which Nock argued that it was the liberty to make these everyday choices that primarily affect ourselves or those decisions that embrace, impact, or affect those around us that require us to weigh thinking about and doing the right thing. The range and scope of such choices are greatly influenced by the degree to which government intrudes upon or leaves us alone to determine those choices on our own. And the point is, the more that government interferes with these matters, the less range there is for each of us to take personal responsibility for what we do and how we do it in guiding our own lives and developing ethical and moral senses concerning our relationships and voluntary obligations and non-compulsory duties to others in society. The development and exercise of these choices, Nock insisted, depends on freedom and the confinement of government to securing each person's liberty rather than restraining it through various forms of political paternalism. So free choice in doing the right thing they go hand in hand. Do you understand how that works? I'll put it another way. This is, this is just my own way of saying it. I don't say it nearly as eloquently as either Albert Nock or Richard M. Ebling. But if you want to be a virtuous person, if you want to live in a virtuous society, people have to be free to choose to be virtuous. Meaning, some would choose not to. Now, if they harm someone, they need to be held accountable for it. They need to make restitution and make the other person whole. But do you see my point? The only time it can be legit virtue is when you could have chosen. You were free to choose not to do it, but you chose to do the right thing anyway. I hope that makes sense. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Final segment for today's show. I just want to share one final thought from Richard Ebling's uh, post from the Future of Freedom Foundation website. I will have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Show notes for October 12th, 2023. Good Lord, we are halfway through the month already. This is nuts. Anyway, he concludes talking about Albert Knox's essay about doing the right thing versus, you know, government, you know, telling us what we must do. And here's how Richard Ebling sums it up. He says, the greater the intrusiveness of government over people's lives, the smaller the areas of life left to people for, for freedom of choice and self-responsibility. Do you understand that? That forced charity, you know, where government takes your money and uses it to help the people, the needy, including those politicians and administrators, and, you know, all that overhead that needs to be paid. That's, you're, you're not being a charitable individual because you're, you know, allowing them to take that money out of your paycheck under threat of putting you in jail if you don't let them. So the narrower the range of individual decision-making, the less the need for people to weigh and act upon what used to be called doing the right thing, both in the marketplace and also in the wider social arena of human association. This is why it's important to halt and reverse the, the size and scope of government in society. Otherwise, both liberty and responsibility as ideas and in actions may disappear. What a beautiful essay. Again, check it out. It's in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Okay, two other quick articles I want to touch on. Um, the organized efforts against free speech. I mean, wow, we saw such an onslaught. You know, again, protecting us from misinformation and, and uh, going against the grain of prevailing medical uh, consensus, you know, during COVID. Well, that hysteria has worn off, but the lust to control speech hasn't. And I've got an article I'm including from Kit Knightley from OffGuardian.org about how the Israel-Hamas war, that's in quotation marks, is just another excuse to shut down free speech. A couple quick excerpts here. Kit Knightley reminds us, the headlines have been filled with nothing but Israel and Hamas since the surprise attack, that's also in quotation marks, and I think rightly so, on Saturday. With the predictable back and forth of historical grievances and accusations of racism punctuated by unsubstantiated claims of atrocities. Okay, you had the President of the United States talking about beheaded children yesterday. The White House had to walk that back. No, he hasn't actually seen photos of that. Those were claims made by the Israeli military. And besides, we know Joe Biden wouldn't exaggerate, and he certainly wouldn't prevaricate or lie, you know, about events, especially if there was some kind of political advantage, right? Right? All right, sarcasm off. Atrocity propaganda, says Kit Knightley, is nothing new. It's the opening salvo of every war as state combatants try to win the public to their side. So that unsubstantiated claim Hamas threw 40 Jewish babies out of their cribs and beheaded them. That was going the rounds yesterday. Now, if you're not familiar with Naraya, or Naira, rather, Naira, she's the young lady who testified that she saw Iraqi soldiers when they invaded Kuwait back in 1990, throwing uh, Kuwaiti babies out of incubators and stealing the, the incubators. I remember it because it was, you know, that was powerful leverage. By gosh, the world does need to gather and we need to go after Saddam Hussein. And I cheered as Gulf War I was launched. Did you know that was false? Did you know that was, that was completely made up? 
So, you know, the whole, they're, they're killing the babies. It's, it's startling in its unoriginality. Bottom line is, be careful. There is a lot of official misinformation that is out there right now, and you are going to see, particularly if this leads us into wider global conflict, and I, I don't want to be pessimistic, but I don't see how this leads anywhere but there. I feel like we we turned a corner this last weekend, and where it goes from here, you know, we're deep into the, the uh, climax of our fourth turning. It's going to get crazy. And this will be used as an excuse. We're on a war footing now. You can't be saying things that challenge the narrative. Watch how it's used to suppress free speech. I think you'll enjoy Kit Knightley's article. By the way, I'm going to just touch briefly here on this one. This is the article of the day. Brandon Smith has a wonderful piece about the trap we're being led into via the latest war in the Middle East. And he... Wow, he talks about uh, where this could lead. He says, if you if you were wondering what the October surprise was going to be this year, well, now you know. Now he says, I'll make my position on this clear. I don't care about either side. He says, I care about innocent civilians, but other than that, the war is irrelevant. I am an American. I care about America. The same goes for Ukraine and Russia. Their wars are not our wars, and I am highly suspicious every time our political leaders try to lure us into choosing a side when foreigners start shooting each other. To summarize, all wars are banker wars. By the way, I saw the meme yesterday. (laughs) I stand with Northrop or Grumman Northrop or whatever is Raytheon. I stand with the, the weapons manufacturers. And, well, you should. You'll be making some big money here in the days ahead. Brandon Smith says the Israelis enjoy our money, but they have a history of proven illicit operations to lure us into war. Do you remember the USS Liberty, anybody? The Palestinians and most of the Muslim world despise the West and Christianity in general, although there are Christian Palestinians. And he says, look, I don't really care who started it. The fact remains our cultures are incompatible. This is not going to change. Just because we happen to find common ground on fighting back against the insane trans agenda doesn't mean I'm willing to accept draconian Sharia law in my community. But this is, I I like where he cuts to the chase here. He says, both sides use tactics that deliberately target civilians. I'm not talking about collateral damage like we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm talking about groups that are consciously and brazenly engaged in plans for for genocide. Bottom line, there are no good guys to join with. It's a complete crap show of ancient tribal nonsense that Westerners should stay away from. Now, here he, he throws down the gauntlet and says, for those that disagree, ask yourselves this. Are you truly willing to go pick up a rifle and fly to Israel or Gaza to fight and die for either side? If so, then go do it and stop demanding that others do it for you. And if not, then shut up. But he says, here's what's going to happen. The establishment will seek to force Americans and Europeans into these wars regardless. The corporate media and some political leaders are already suggesting that the recent full-scale attack on Israel was planned by governments outside of Gaza. Hey, they've had their eye on Iran for a long time. This is their excuse. They also are looking at Lebanon, and from the extensive amount of footage that he's seen, Brandon Smith says, I have no doubt that someone other than Palestinians orchestrated the event. The tactics were far too advanced, far too coordinated. The Palestinians have never been all that smart when it comes to military strategy. 
But he says, in a couple of weeks, he says, I, first of all, he says, this reminds me of the events of 9-11 and the strange series of intelligence failures that preceded it. But he says, I'm going to call it here. In a couple of weeks, we're going to hear that many of the soldiers involved in the incursion were not Palestinian. They will claim some of them are from Iran, Syria, Lebanon. There will be intel that says Iran was a major backer of the plan. By the way, that's already being floated out there without any compelling proof as yet. A U.S. carrier strike group is on the way to the region, and this is just the beginning. Europeans will be pressured to go to war. American conservatives in particular will be waterboarded with propaganda, telling us that an attack on Israel is an attack on the U.S. It'll be a lot like the rhetoric neocons and leftists used during the initial invasion of Ukraine, but multiplied by a thousand. To be clear, both Biden and Trump have been rattling sabers and testing the waters of war, so don't think that we can avoid this simply by voting. Now, he says Israel's going to pound Gaza into gravel. There's no doubt about that. A ground invasion will meet far more resistance than the Israelis seem to expect. But Israel controls the air and Gaza's a fixed target with limited territory. But the problem for them is not the Palestinians. It's the problem that it's going to open up multiple fronts. Lebanon, Iran, and Syria will likely engage. And this is going to result in inevitable demands for the U.S. and the European Union to intervene. And this is where you may see the BRICS nations compelled to get involved. Russia has strategic security treaties with Iran and Syria. China has numerous economic interests and influence in the region as the world's largest importer and exporter. And if you thought things were kind of eerily quiet on the terrorism front lately, that's now over. He says, I'd be shocked if we make it another six months without multiple attacks tied back to Islamic groups. Some of them will be real. Some of them will be staged. Telling which is which will be difficult. By the way, if the Straits of Hormuz are closed, you could see skyrocketing oil prices. You could see a push for a new draft. And this is to say nothing about the ongoing migrant invasion on our southern border. He says, I believe the real war is yet to truly start, and that is the war to erase the globalists from existence. They want, to fight, they want us to fight overseas in endless quagmires in the hopes that we will die out. And when we do, there will be no one left to oppose them. It's a predictable strategy. But he says, success is doubtful. It's an article you really should take a look at. This is The Brian Hyde Show.